Heavenly Father, we thank thee for this night, for this church, for thy son Jesus Christ. I pray that thou wouldst help me now, help us to learn, and to grow, and to be changed. In thy name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So chapter 8 of Hosea, if you want to turn there, while you're turning there, just some quick review, some major themes of Hosea. God is using marriage as an, an illustration of his covenant faithfulness, as an illustration of his covenant love towards his people. And essentially, if you look at the book of Hosea and really the whole Old Testament, it is God's love towards his people in spite of their rebellion and whoredom. Covenant faithfulness of God is shown by his judgment and his mercy. And so this is something that I think you miss out on in today's modern church. If you go and sit in a pew, you hear all about God's love. You hear all about God's mercy and patience and kindness as a function of who he is. But you rarely hear how his judgment is a function of who he is. How he is both good and just. And so he can't overlook sin. He can't simply forget sin. It must be punished. It must be judged. So God's love in Hosea is especially likened to marriage. And we see this worked out in judgment and mercy. So our perspective that the scriptures teach is that Hosea married Gomer while she was yet faithful to him. Though that kindling of idolatry was in her heart. That Gomer had not yet played the harlot, but she would very shortly after their marriage. And this is an illustration to Israel and God. How he led them into Canaan. He went before them in battle. And soon as they got comfortable, they started building the kingdom and they, they they forgot who their God is. So they became unfaithful. So if we're going to use the marriage illustration that is used in Hosea, we have to look at it as God loving Israel in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness. In spite of Israel's unfaithfulness. So chapter one, or chapter eight, verse one, set the trumpet to thy mouth. He shall come as an eagle against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my law. Horns and trumpets And loud sounds were alarms in the Old Testament. Something is about to happen. Something terrible is about to happen. War. And in this case, this was a sounding alarm of God's impending judgment upon Israel. Be alert. Move quickly. Judgment is coming. Return. That is what the sound of the horn means here. We see the illustration of an eagle coming. Uh, Some modern versions render it vulture, but it's more accurately rendered eagle because Israel is not yet dead. She does not need to be picked clean like a carcass. She is being judged quickly. It is coming like a bird of prey, killing something alive. And so this is an accurate rendering of this word in the original language means a bird of prey. So Israel is yet to be judged. God is swiftly coming and the the horn is sounded, the alarm is rung, and Israel must return lest she be judged. So why? 
We, we've seen this all throughout Hosea so far, but why? Because they have transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my law. God's judgment is not without warrant. He has been patient with them. He has been loving towards them. And they have continued to play the harlot against him and his covenant faithfulness. God is merciful, but we must remember that he is also just. He cannot simply look over sin and covenant unfaithfulness and be true to who he is. Verse 2, Israel shall cry unto me, my God, we know thee. We see Israel's response, it will be that of surprise and protest. But God, why art thou doing this to us? We've done all the ceremonies you've required of us and some other things. But we did the basics. Israel thought themselves right in their idolatry because they included him as a part of their worship. He was just an add-in to the many, many gods that they had chosen for themselves. Exodus thirty-four fourteen says, For thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God is righteous, and he cares much more about his name and his glory than the feelings of Israel. the feelings of Israel. And in Exodus 34, 15, the next verse says, Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and go whoring after other gods. This concept of whoring, this concept of marriage, this concept of covenant faithfulness goes back to Exodus and before. And this is what they were not to do, and they decided to do it anyway. He cares about his marriage with Israel. He cares about faithfulness. Israel should not be surprised here But if we remember back to chapter 4, you want to flip a few pages over. Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel. For the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood toucheth blood. Therefore shall the land mourn, and every one that dwelleth therein shall languish with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of the heaven. Yea, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. Yet let no man strive nor reprove another, for thy people are as they that strive with the priest. Therefore therefore shalt thou fall in the day, and the prophet also shall fall with thee in the night, and I will destroy thy mother. And here is the, the catalyst for why they've gotten into this predicament. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me. Seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. We have to remember that this forgetting is a act, a conscientious act by Israel. It's, it's not like when you lose your keys. It's not like when you misplace a shoe They decided to neglect the word of God, the law of God. And more importantly, they may have had head knowledge, but they had no heart knowledge. They had no conviction. They had no conscience. There was nothing connecting their head and their heart. And if we do not see this concept in Hosea, we've missed a major theme. That God does not just require head knowledge from us. He requires heart knowledge. 
true, genuine, experiential heart knowledge. God does not demand worship. He demands right worship according to the knowledge that he gives. He does not just demand worship. He demands correct worship. And how are we to know what right worship is if we do not know what he says? All of the errors of the modern church can be explained by not knowing what God's word says. When you go to another church and you see the big laser light shows and the big worship bands, they have forsaken the knowledge of God. When you go to a church and they're giving a pep talk and spraying their congregation with super soakers, they've forsaken the law of God, the word of God. If you would, turn to John 5, and we're going to be in verses 37 through 39. John chapter 5. 37 and 39. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, Jesus speaking, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape, and ye have not his word abiding in you, and ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him ye believeth not. It is not about simple head knowledge. Ye believe not, ye know not, and you're destroyed for thy lack of knowledge. This is why those that persist in error despite correction time and time after again, are to be warned, set the trumpet to thy mouth. The Lord hath hath a controversy with thee. The Lord hath a controversy with thee. A reminder to us, a, a, a powerful reminder not to add strange religion to our worship of Jehovah God. That is why we have the Holy Spirit to lead us unto all truth and righteousness. And if we neglect the spirit working in the word of God, we neglect, we neglect God, we neglect his knowledge, we neglect his truth, and we are so prone to error that we can become like Israel who perhaps didn't even realize they were in error because they were so calloused and so cold and so dumb and dull and deaf. Verse 3. And, and verses 2 and 3 can be taken together, so I'm going to start in verse 2. Israel shall cry unto me, my God, we know thee, Israel hath cast off the thing that is good. The enemy shall pursue him. These two verses taken together, verse 2 shows what they say, and verse 3 shows what they do. A half-hearted cry of faith, married to hypocrisy and whoredom. The enemy shall pursue him. A sign of defeat caused by faithlessness. If you want to, actually we won't go there, but Joshua 10.19, they're being led into the promised land. They're conquering the land. And stay ye not, but pursue after your enemies. For the Lord your God hath delivered them into your hand. And what's happening here? They're being pursued. The Lord hath delivered them into the enemy's hand. Because they did not trust the Lord's going before them. Instead, they turned to their false gods and their false religion. When Israel was faithful, God led them into battle, taking the land. And so Israel being pursued is a parallel opposite to what we see in Joshua. Verse 4. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. 
Of their silver and their gold have they made them idols, and they may be cut off. If you would, turn over to 1 Samuel 8. Right after Joshua and Judges. We're just going to take pretty much the whole chapter here. So keep in mind this idea. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have set up kings, but not by me. Keep that in mind as we read this passage. And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. Now this word knew, it's not as though Israel had done something that God didn't know about. What this means is, is I have not ordained this. This is not by my wisdom. You have done this of your own accord and you will be judged by it. God knew very well where Adam was in the garden when he called out to him. In the same way, he knows very well where Israel is right now. He knows very well where Israel is. Verse 5. Thy calf, O Samaria, hath cast thee off. Mine anger is kindled against them. How long will it be ere they attain to innocency? Thy calf represents the whole idolatrous system. It wasn't, some, some commentators maybe speculate that they had actually set up a calf in Samaria, but, but more likely the calf is a, is a symbolic representation of the wholehearted idolatry of Israel. And, and what do calves mean in, in scripture, what does God use calves uh, in scripture to show us and teach us? Exodus 32, we want not what has become of him, and we want not means we know not. We want not know what has become of him, speaking of Moses. And then what do they do? They say, we, okay, yeah, Moses, yeah, he, he let us out. God has been faithful to us so far, but where did he go? We can't see him. What do they do? They forget, they, they, they lose knowledge of Moses, and then they construct a golden calf. What do, we, what do we see here? They're destroyed for their lack of knowledge. Thy calf, O Samaria, hath cast thee off. Mine anger is kindled against them. How long will it be ere they attain unto innocency or not? How long will you not attain unto innocency? How long will you be wicked? How long will you not be innocent? The calf that they have chosen in this generation is the, 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 the Baal-worshipping religion of the pagans. They had forgotten Jehovah who had brought them out of Egypt and put their hope in something else. And we, we look at Samaria at this time. Samaria perhaps had become the metropolis of Israel, the, 
the place of prosperity. We remember the context of Hosea. Israel was doing pretty well. So well that they had enough to take their grain and take their silver and gold and sacrifice it to Baals. They were so prosperous that they had forgotten where their help comes from. And they had blasphemed the Lord on his own very altar. So the calf of Samaria represents the wholesale idolatry of Israel. How long will it be ere they attain to innocency? Verse 6. For from Israel was it also, the workmen made it. Therefore it is not God, but the calf of Samaria shall be broken into pieces. If you want to head back over to 1 Samuel chapter 5, God in every generation shows that he is much mightier than human idols and human gods, so-called. 1 Samuel 5. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when, and when they of Ashdod arose early in the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord, and they took Dagon and set him in his place again. And when they arose early on the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him calf of Samaria shall be broken into pieces. God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to himself. He is merciful, but he is also just. What a mighty, mighty God we have. Jehovah crushes idols and false gods set up by men in every generation. Verse 7. For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. It hath no stalk. The bud shall yield no meal. If so, be it yield. The stranger shall swallow it up. This is a proverb of sorts. A proverb of sorts. We, we think of Proverbs 22.8, He that soweth iniquity shall reap vanity. They, they sow the, the wind and they reap the whirlwind. And it hath no stock. The bud shall, shall yield no meal. If so, be it yield, the strangers shall swallow it up. They're sowing into vain, folly, foolish religion to a foolish God, and it will destroy them. And if they even produce some sort of semblance of fruit, God will not accept that sacrifice. The strangers will eat it up. The strangers will eat it up. Their sowing has no foundation, no heart, no true worship. It will yield no fruit. God will look at it and say, this is not for me, clearly. I don't want it. Even their so-called right worship is folly and sinful because it is mixed. So we step back from this story where Israel is being proclaimed, proclaimed judgment over them. The, the trumpets have been sounded. God's judgment will swoop upon them like an eagle. And so we look at this and we, we, we ask ourselves, is our worship heart worship? Are we going through the motions? Do we check all the boxes, dot all the I's, cross all the T's with no heart? Are we sowing the wind? Are we sowing the wind? 
Let us not, like Israel here, so outwardly, in a way that looks correct, while inwardly being corrupt and mixing true heart religion with our idolatry. Because any yield produced by this dead worship, this dry worship, this head worship without heart, is sacrificed to other gods. Perhaps the God of self-indulgence. Perhaps the, the, the legalistic God that we've set up for ourselves that if I do all the right things, then God will love me. Let us not sow the wind like Israel. Our worship must be directed to God, for God, and by God. Verse 8. Israel swallowed up, is swallowed up. Now shall they be among the Gentiles as a vessel wherein is no pleasure. Everything that had made Israel set apart, unique, was gone. It was gone. If you want to turn over to Exodus 19, the reason that I'm continuing to go back into the Old Testament is I want to show you God's consistency here, God's faithfulness, what God says and his judgments here later on in Israel's history. Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. He bore them on eagles' wings, and now he sends an eagle as judgment. Verse 5. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto my, me above all people, for all the earth is mine. You shall be a peculiar people. And we read here in verse 8, Israel is swallowed up. Now shall they be among the Gentiles as a vessel wherein is no pleasure. This should not surprise Israel. In fact, this should comfort Israel, knowing that God has not changed. All they have to do is turn back, and God's judgment will be brief. For from the dark, dark night of this season of Israel's history comes the morning star. Everything that made Israel unique now destroyed, and God hates it. Verse 9, For they are gone up to Assyria, a wild ass alone by himself. Ephraim hath hired lovers, Yea, though they have tired among the nations, now will I gather them, and they shall sorrow a little for the burden of, of the king of princes. Read this with a mocking voice, dear church. Verse 9, For they are gone up to Assyria a wild ass, alone by himself. A frame Israel hath hired lovers. They hired lovers. Yes, Israel's lack of knowledge is the reason. Like a wild ass moving to and fro, not having direction or purpose, yet they still hired lovers. They still hired lovers. They still did it. Ignorance still has consequences. And it doesn't excuse you if you sin. Sin is not overlooked by God because it offends him regardless. God is offended with every sin, regardless of how stupid the sinner is. 
regardless of how brutish the sinner is. God hates sin and he hates sinners. We often hear about the sin of ignorance that it may be misunderstood in many modern contexts. But we see here as a great example. For they, like a wild ass, still hired lovers. And is God going to judge them for that still? Yes. Yes. So how horrible is it us in this modern context who has God's word, has his law completely preserved down to the word, and yet we play ignorant? Israel, my people are destroyed for their lack of knowledge, he says. So let us not be like the wild ass who has all the resources, who has the covenant love of Jehovah directed towards us. His word given to us, carefully preserved. Let us not neglect our duty to read it, to know it, to experience it. Verse 10. Yea, though they have hired among other nations, now will I gather them, and they shall sorrow a little for the burden of the king of princes. A little. This, this, this time would be but a little. He would not keep them in their sin. This judgment was for a time. There would be reprieve. There would be mercy. There would be grace. But the mechanism that God is using to bring Israel out of their idolatry is judgment. Because he is being faithful to his covenant that he has made with them. Now I will, I will gather them. Soon they will suffer under a foreign king pointing to Assyrian captivity, king of princes. Verse 11, because a frame hath made many altars to sin, altars shall be unto him to sin. This is yet another sort of turn of phrase. Israel had purpose to sin, hath made many altars, and could not be convinced that they were sinning even. Yet those altars they would be punished for, shall be unto him sin. Oh, they wish to step out of my command, God says, let it be so then. I will judge them for it. They've chosen their altars. They've built them. And to, the, to them, those altars will be their sin. They may have purposed them towards Jehovah, but Jehovah did not ordain those means of worship. He did not command them to do it. They've set for themselves kings that he did not ordain and appoint. They've made altars, perhaps to his name even, that he did not command. He said, let those altars be a sin to them. See, verse 12 here, I have written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. We see that despite God giving Israel all that they needed to love him, they counted it as foreign and strange. Be not ignorant here of what is going on. Israel had every opportunity. Not only did they have the tradition of being brought out of Egypt into the land. You can't tell me that there were not stories of that being told. They also had God's word, which would not fall away like a mere tradition of man. And yet they considered it as a strange and foreign tongue to them. Turning away from God's word is no benign thing, dear church. The more we do it, the more callous we become, 
the more closed off we are to hearing God's voice, and the more prone we are to be like Israel here, who sets up altars to Jehovah when he didn't ask for them to be set up. And perhaps we even set up altars to other gods in our heart. So the reminder to us, the reminder to us is that we do have God's word because he loves us and he cares for his people and he desires that you know him and that you know that you know what he says and he has given you a way to do that. Verse 13, they sacrifice flesh for sacrifices of mine offerings and eat it, but the Lord accepteth them not. Now will he remember their iniquity and visit their sins. They shall return to Egypt. They shall return to Egypt. The covenant blessings of God were delivery out of Egypt, delivery into the promised land. All these blessings, all the milk and honey and silver and gold, these are now expired. These gifts are now expired. And so when we examine ourselves, it's important that we know that we can hide nothing from God. For he knows all of our deeds. He knows our heart. So do not in your rebellion, if we've ever been in this season or in the season now, start to think of the stability and comfort of the Egyptian captivity like Israel did. When they were in the desert wandering and they got tired and they said, bring us back to Egypt. At least there was some stability there. At least there was some stability there. Let us not do that. Let us not look back to our past lives, the, the things that we may have enjoyed outside of Christ. Let us not do that. For we may become like Israel, calloused and cold and hearing the voice of our shepherd as a stranger. stranger so do not in your rebellion start to think of the stability and comfort of egyptian captivity remember the cruel taskmaster masters and slave labor the devil and your flesh remember the cruel taskmasters and slave labor of your youth before christ in our weakness we often forget like israel the hardships and the cruelty of our sinful desires and set a course back for egypt In fact, it is the forgetting of what God has done in our lives, just like Israel here, that often leads us back into wickedness, leads us into backsliding, leads us into callous hearts. We forget the word of the Lord. We forget what he has done for us. We forget his promise, the promise of his covenant, that he will have a people unto himself. The Lord, dear church, accepts you in Christ. Trust like the manna in the desert, that the manna will come from heaven. It will come. Christ will provide for you. Do not turn back to Egypt, for there is nothing there for you but a cruel taskmaster master, and slave labor. Verse 14. For Israel hath forgotten his maker, and buildeth temples, and Judah hath multiplied fenced cities, but I will send a fire upon his cities, And it shall devour the places thereof. Forgetting is a conscientious decision. It is done by neglect. We attend to neglect when we forget. Think of it this way. When we attend to the means of grace. When we attend the Lord's Day sermon. When we attend Lord's Day preaching. 
when we pray, when we read our scriptures, when we have conference with our brothers and sisters in Christ, that's attending to the things of the Lord. Forgetting is attending to neglect. We conscientiously set aside time not to do the things of the Lord. It is a conscientious decision. All of the kingdom of Israel, all the kingdom that Israel had built, could not defend against the judgment of God. If we read in verse 14, and buildeth temples, they had built fenced cities. They had defended themselves against the surrounding nations, but those surrounding nations were not a threat to them. God was a threat to them. For if God decided to bulldoze Israel overnight, he could. And as we see soon in the history of Israel, he would do just that. And we must, in this age of reason, be more in awe of what God has done and can do than what man can do. We build around ourselves, around our lives, these walls, these temples, these structures of safety, which give the false appearance of safety and comfort, whether that be a boyfriend or a spouse or a job or perhaps children. Maybe it's a hobby, a video game. Things that we go and retreat into as a temple, things that we build walls around and say, this is my safe place, I'm safe here. And yet we see that as safe as Israel thought themselves to be, God was sending an eagle. He was sending his judgment. We may build walls that protect us from earthly trouble, from our anxieties, from our stress, from our own unbelief, even. We lack heart. But God sees the heart. And he is thwarted by none of our schemes. He sees right through our devices. And just like Israel's walls and just like Israel's temples, they would soon come crashing down. And we, being in Christ, have the opportunity to just walk out. Just walk to the Savior. You need not wait. You have everything, all the riches in Christ. Some thoughts for reflection here tonight. In what ways, maybe you can write this down or think of it throughout this week, in what ways am I sowing the wind? What am I doing in my heart? Is there counsel that I have not heeded to? Am I hiding a sin from my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I going through the right motions and yet have an idolatrous heart? Am I placing my faith in something that God is saying no to? Consider these things and as we examine ourselves by the scriptures today, Consider those things that you have yet surrendered unto Christ. Know that he is faithful to receive you in all of those things. For he is covenantally faithful. And you being his covenant people, there is nothing that you are lacking in Christ. So run unto the Savior. Verse 12 again. I have written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. 
God has given us his word. He's written it to us and for us. When you read the Holy Scriptures, consider what you're reading, what you're beholding. The very words of the living God, Jehovah. To you, for you. And he will help you read them. He will help you understand them. He will help them cut directly to the quick of your heart. So we must ask ourselves a couple of questions as we leave here tonight. How can I be receiving God's word better? How can I attend to the ministry of the word more? How can I make my Bible reading more meaningful? How can I hear the Lord's Day preaching and have it be more impactful on my soul? How am I attending to the means of grace? Do I find myself saying often, well, this is a great and encouraging passage, but that's not for me right now. The word of God is living and active, and it is indeed for you. Every line, every word, every jot, every tittle. And to neglect that very truth is a deep warning to you, a loud warning, like an alarm. For when we neglect to receive the word as if it's written for us, because it is, do not be surprised when an eagle comes as judgment in your life. Whether that be a backsliding season where you neglect the means of grace, neglect the, the call of your Savior's voice. Do I find myself saying, that's just not for me right now? All scripture is for you, Christian. Forget it not. Cling to the words of Christ and the Holy Scriptures. Trust that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in them. That God works in his word by the Spirit in your heart. And affirms to you all the meaningful glories that he has given to us. To be sharpened by, built up, encouraged, taught, rebuked. That we may be made perfect in all things. Let's pray. High and heavenly Father, we cherish thy word. We trust in thee that thou art faithful, for thou art a covenant God with a covenant people. Thou will not fail us. Help us to trust in thee more, to believe upon thee more, to surrender more of ourselves unto thee, to hear thy voice in the scriptures as we read them, and to turn not from thy warnings, but to trust that thou art working all things for thy glory and our good. We love thee and we praise thee. In Jesus' name, amen.